0: So I don't know if you've ever had this before. I don't know if you've ever had uh, someone ask you a question And you answer the question in the moment, but then you keep coming back to the question. You keep refining your answer to the question. It it sticks with you. You can't shake the question. You keep hearing it over and over again. I had one of those recently. A few weeks ago, somebody asked me a question uh, in a couple of different ways, but it stuck with me. I can't shake it. I keep thinking about it and, and, and maybe coming up with what I think is a better answer to the question. Here's the question. Five minutes after your life is over, what will you wish you'd given I mean, that was so jarring to me when I, when I heard that. And, and, and there were other ways of asking that question. There are other ways of asking that question. What will you wish you, you'd pursued? What will you wish you would have told someone? What will you wish you, you would have done for someone? After you die, five minutes after you die, what will you wish you, you would have done? It's a question meant to help us shape our thinking about what's important in the here and now so we don't miss out on those types of things, so that we don't wait till later, because later is never promised. This probably says a lot about me, but uh, both my dad and, and my stepdad—they—they uh, they have, I think, things that they like to bestow uh, as as I'm as I'm leaving, just in case they like they we don't they won't they don't want this to go unsaid. And so when I'm leaving my dad's house, when I'm pulling out, this same thing happened nine nine times out of ten. And when I'm leaving, I'm pulling away, I look back, and he's uh, holding up two fingers. Not, not bad, two fingers. These two fingers, good good two fingers. Uh, nine times out of ten, uh, so, uh, and he says peace. That's a uh, peace, right? Uh, He's kind of a child of the 60s and and in some ways stayed there, at least in his heart. And uh, so he just says, peace, right? And I drive away. My stepdad, he has a slightly different thing that he says every time I leave, nine times out of 10. He looks at me and says, hey, watch the bridges and overpasses. They freeze first. Now, I know in Florida, we don't really have to deal with that, but this is up in Indiana. And that would make a ton of sense if I only was at his house in the wintertime. But that's not the case. Sometimes I'm there in the summer or the spring or the fall, and there's no chance of freezing. But I think it's just a loop in his head that he has to say it. He's like, hey, watch the bridges and overpasses passes, they freeze first. It's like, okay, I got it. So if you add all that up, basically these kind of final words from these men that have had such an impact on my life are, live a life of peace and drive carefully. It's not bad advice, actually. Like, if you only have two things, it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of pretty good. It's pretty good advice, actually. In this series, as I mentioned before, we're looking at the last hours of Jesus' life. Starting at Easter and then the weeks after, we're going to look at the resurrection and the impact that that has all the way up into us today. But, but before we get there, over these next four weeks, we're going to slow down and we're going to look at the moments before the cross. One commentator uh, once said, for Jesus, life had a climax, and that climax was the cross. But he gave us so much more before that, especially in the moments just before the cross. So we're going to look at uh, Jesus and how he responds, the things he does, the things he says, because I think we'll get a clearer picture of who he is. And let me just say right up front, part of how we'll be walking through <clears throat> this series is, uh, is I'm hoping that we get this clearer Picture of, of who Jesus is because I don't want to stand up here and say, hey, be more like Jesus, be more like Jesus, be more like Jesus, if Jesus isn't somebody you want to be like. And so I think over these four weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is someone we want to be like. In John 17, we get, uh, uh, we get a picture of Jesus on his way to a garden. Now, a garden, walk to a garden might seem like a pleasant thing. It wasn't for Jesus, at least not in this moment. This was the walk to the garden where he'd be arrested and eventually go to the cross. So what was he thinking about along his way? Well, in John 17, he prays. And not, and not the prayer from the garden of Gethsemane. We'll mention that in a moment, but he prays before that. So we're going to unpack that prayer, particularly the first part and the last part of that prayer, and we're going to see two really important things about Jesus. Jesus will see his faith in the Father, and we'll also see, maybe surprisingly, his confidence in us. So we're going to see the faith he had in the Father and the confidence he had in us. So let's dive in. If you have your bulletin, you can turn that over at the beginning of chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can open that as well. But it goes like this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, the time has come. Jesus knew he was headed to the cross. We've been reading through John, as I mentioned in the Gospel reading plan, and you you see glimpses of this along the way, and there's not always this absolute clarity about Jesus' speech, but if you add it up, you can see he clearly knows that he's going to the cross. In John 12, he says uh, to his followers, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, unless the kernel falls to the ground and dies, it stays a single seed. In chapter 16, Jesus sat with his followers and he says, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me again. You will, re- you will weep, but but your grief will, will turn to joy. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. And just before this prayer, just before this walk to the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested, he's sitting with his, with his friends, his closest friends, and he releases one of them, Judas. He says, go. I know, I know what you're about to do. Go do it quickly, he says. Be swift about it. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He's going to lead the officials to Jesus. He's going to be arrested, eventually tried and crucified. So Jesus knows that he's going to die. But there's a reasonable question, right? Maybe we know that. Maybe we've heard that. Maybe we can even believe, you know what? I get it. Jesus knew he was going to die. But that doesn't answer the why question. That's just the what So Jesus knew it, but but why? It's a reasonable question. If we're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe if we are a follower of Jesus, maybe we wrestle with this question. Why? If God is God, God can do anything, why this? Why did Jesus come, show up, serve, heal, and then go to the cross? If God is God, why didn't he just wave his finger and say, salvation for all? Why this? The answer is because of love. I've mentioned this before, but I think the Bible in and of itself is is an incredible thing. It took over a span of of 3,500 years to write. There's 35 or so different authors, 66 different books, multiple languages, multiple literary genres, all compiled into one. And if you read it cover to cover, you get one thread. There's one thing that holds the whole thing together. It's love. A single story of a holy God wanting broken people to come back to him so badly that he made the way. And at each stop in this book, in the scriptures, you get a God communicating to people in a way they'll understand. And so so God shows his love in, in, in how he'll communicate. He doesn't talk to ancient Mesopotamians like he would 21st century scientists. And he doesn't talk to first century Palestinian agrarian Jews like he would bankers on Wall Street in 2018. He speaks to people right where they are. He's personal. And he meets people there. And so it shouldn't surprise us if that's who God is, if that's his character, if he's a God who is love and wants to meet people where they are, that he just show up. He's like, the best way for me to communicate my love is just to show up and embody it. It's said that the glory of God is the sum of all of his attributes on display. And Jesus here to open his prayer says, God, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The cross is how he did it. That's where we see the full attributes of God on display. We see his power over sin and death. We see his sovereignty to save the world through his love and his grace, to take on all the sin of the world and show mercy to us. We see his forgiveness as God in the flesh. So Jesus' coming was necessary, and the cross was necessary because of love. But this is important. Though the cross was necessary, it doesn't mean it was welcomed. Just because it was necessary doesn't mean it was welcomed. This wasn't a welcome circumstance for Jesus. If you flip over to Luke 22, you see Jesus praying again. This is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. And he says essentially this, God, take this away from me. I don't want this. I don't want it to end like this. I don't want to go through this. And he says, but not my will yours. Like I'll submit to, to your will, but I don't want this. I think maybe the reason we can relate to Jesus or maybe the way in which we can relate to Jesus best is actually in his suffering. When Jesus is healing, when he's being miraculous, when he's, when he's showing uh, power over authority, these are things that maybe we appreciate, but they're hard for us to relate to. I think we relate to Jesus in the suffering because it's something that we all share. We all experience. Jesus saying, God, take this away from me. I don't want it. I think it's something we can all relate to. But here's where we see the faith of Jesus. His circumstances weren't the determinant factor in his faith. He didn't want to go through this, but he said, not my will, yours. The question for us is, how often is our faith tied to our circumstances? Do we live in a way, even if we would never say it, but do we live in a way that says, if things are going well for me, then God is good. But if things are off for me, God must not be good if I haven't made it to that place where I have all the things I want, if I'm still struggling with that thing that hurts me and hurts others, if I'm feeling the sting of loss, if I still don't have that job, or maybe I do have that job, and then when I got there, I realized, man, this isn't all that I ever wanted. It doesn't fulfill me completely. Do we say, you know what? Life isn't easy, God. What's wrong with you? I thought you loved me. I thought that's what that whole story was about, right? Right? That preacher man got up and said that whole story was about love, but I'm not feeling it right now. What's wrong with you? The story is about love. That's what God's story is about. That's why Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He's saying we're built to rely on God. We're wired up to rely on him, and there will be moments in this world where we need to. our circumstances are showing us, they're screaming at us that some self-sufficient path in life isn't enough to bring all the security that we hope that it will. So in these moments, we can lean on ourselves and our own understanding or we lean on the one that loves us. And our circumstances, good or bad, will lead us either toward or away from the God who loves us. And that the heart of this, the struggle at the heart of these moments where we say, you know what? Things aren't all right. I'm having a hardship. I'm having a struggle. I'm having a trial. In these moments, the heart is we wrestle with this idea that we think maybe we should graduate from our need for God. Like I get it when I'm young, when I'm at the pit of despair. I need God to lift me out. But I got things kind of going in the right direction now. I'm in school or I've graduated school. i got a job. i got a family. Thing, mortgage is pretty much under control. Everything's kind of under control. I think I've graduated from my need for God. Thanks for getting me here. I'll take it from here. And we disconnect from him and we go it alone. What Jesus is showing us in this prayer and in his action is that there is wisdom in remembering we need him. And Jesus is inviting us to stay connected with him, especially when our circumstances aren't ideal. So as Jesus is walking to the garden, he has 11 people with him. That was it, 11 people. He had 12, he released one of them. He said, I know what you're headed out to do. You're gonna sell me out, go ahead and do it. When you think 11 people, that's not too bad to have that walking beside you when you go through a trial. But the thing is, this is a far cry from the thousands that were with him just a few chapters ago. 11, that was it. And he was headed toward the cross, a tool used by an oppressive government to shame people. So he was headed toward public shame with a few people and that's all that was left. But even in these circumstances, handful of followers headed toward his shame, his faith was unshaken and his connection to the Father was unshaken. See in this moment when he could have been focused on his own rescue, his eyes were focused on ours. And he trusted God's plan. He believed that the message of God's love, this truth that no one need be left out, that his sacrifice would draw people home to God, and he was focused on that. He believed that would endure, even through his suffering. His faith in the Father was unshaken. So the beginning of Jesus' prayer shows his faith in the Father. The end of the prayer shows his confidence in us. Jesus' prayer has this kind of movement to it. It has this outward movement. He begins praying for himself as he faces down uh, the cross for our sake. He then moves to pray for those 11 that were around him, his his disciples, that God would give them power and protect them and keep them, not take them out of the world, but protect them in the world. That's important. And then lastly, his prayer takes this really far-reaching outward look all the way to right here, right now. Jesus prayed specifically for you as he head toward a cross. Here's what Jesus prayed for you. The end of uh, chapter 17, starting in verse 20. My prayer is not only for them alone, he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's saying us, us who believe in Jesus through the message of the disciples. Here was the prayer, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then Jesus says, the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus prayed for you. 2,000 years before you were born, Jesus prayed for you. He has incredible confidence in you. Wedding days uh, are, of course, really significant days in, in people's lives. And, and for me, it was one of the most significant days in my life, and, uh, and and that's how it should be. One of the things I remember most, I have a few days, uh, specific memories about my wedding day, not least of which is the fact that we had a chocolate fountain at the reception. Uh, it was my one request for the reception. It was mostly a joke, but they went with it, and so I was really proud it was there, uh, and so I had that, but but um, the most significant memory, and, and many grooms share this as a significant memory, is the moment I saw Abby coming up the aisle. So Abby and I got married at a, at a church, which I know for, for most people today, that's an incredibly strange thing. You drive an hour to a cow pasture to get married now, um, <laughs> But you used to get married in a church, and so that's what we did. And so uh, all the folks, the guests were there, and she kind of came around the side. I couldn't see her until she turned right up the center aisle, and I was struck. Man, Abby was beautiful almost as beautiful as she is today, right? And so she's just, I mean, it's just amazing. I was overjoyed. I was like, I can't believe I get to marry this lady. And um, so, so there was that feeling, but, the, but there was a, a coupling. There was another feeling that I was feeling in that moment, and it was the weight of responsibility. See, Abby's dad was standing next to her. Now I know this man, and I know how good he is, and I know how he sacrificed and loved Abby. I know how he prayed for her every single day. And I know he prayed for me before he even knew me. He prayed that I would be the type of man that would love and care and protect her, this precious gift of Abby. He prayed for me. The joy was matched with responsibility in that moment, and I was humbled that such a good man would have such confidence in me. This is the sense we should get from Jesus' prayer in this moment. He prayed for you because he has so much trust in you. He prayed that his followers would carry on the message And he trusts us with this precious message of of love. And he says, that love will come to life. It will be seen in the world if you are unified. He says, then the world will know that that the Father sent me, Jesus says. Then the world will know about grace. Then the world will know the reason for the cross if you are unified. Jesus is saying, if we live what we are made for, which is unity, If we live what we are made for, it will point people to who they are made for, which is him. Let me say that again. If we live what we are made for, it will point others to who they are made for. I can't believe Jesus trusted us with this. And it's a tall order. Because here's the problem. For many of us, that's not what we experience. We don't experience unity, not that type of unity. What we experience is division. There's a recent Gallup poll, and I could point to all kinds of Facebook and news sources and all these types of things, but I'll just go straight to a Gallup poll recently, and it was, it was focused on the lack of unity in America. Record high, 77% of Americans consider the country divided. That's three out of every four of us would say, basically, the country is divided more than it's united. Division isn't something we just talk about or hear about on the news. It's, it's what we experience in the space between all our conversations at the office when we sit at the table with our extended family when we talk to that friend from high school on facebook it's division is what's in the space between all of that if you go back to the first garden because here's why here's here's why i believe this is the case more than anything else if you go back to the first garden where jesus is walking to a garden but the first garden was back in genesis where god placed Humanity for the first time man and woman and and he said let's continue to make this world good together And he gave him a choice. He said he said look I need you to trust me with this You can have all of it. Just not this thing trust me that I'll decide what's good and what's evil don't go that direction Just trust me with that You don't want you don't want that responsibility God says give that to me, but people said no, I'd rather be my own frame of reference I'd rather decide good and evil for myself. They ate the fruit. And you know what happened right after that? They hid. That's that's why. I believe that's the source of why 77% of Americans feel division, because that's what we do, we hide. We choose our way, we become our own frame of reference, and then we hide from each other. We divide out, we separate. We put each other in boxes. That's kind of the flow of things. It's the first curse perpetuated over and over and over and over and over again. We choose our own way and then we hide. And even if this is clearly a broken way of being, sometimes we just get used to it and we say, I guess that's just how things are. I guess we'll just go with it. I guess there's nothing really to change it. This is just how things work, right? My first car that I ever had was a 1991 Toyota Corolla. Uh, I loved that car. Um, I started working when I was 14, started saving money. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I went to the dealership and I wrote a check. I paid cash, $3,600. Boom, slapped it down, drove away with a car, except I didn't drive away with a car because I didn't have my license yet because my parents wouldn't pay for my insurance. So they're like, until you buy a car, there's no reason to have your license. So my stepdad had to drive it home. Yes. Um, but anyway, I had a car and eventually got my license. I love that thing. I washed it all the time. And, uh, and into college, I still had it. And uh, it was great, great little car. Saved one thing. And it was the air conditioning. Now, the air conditioning worked just fine. The problem was it had this little dial that you went back and forth. You know, now they have knobs, but it's like a little dial. Uh, and so, you know, to get you between, like, on your feet or in the, on, you know, the defrost and all these things. Well, it was broken. It just did, didn't do anything. just didn't change anything. But no problem. If you if you reached under the dash, like, kind of like this, there was this little knob, and you could turn it back and forth and just be like, oh, I'd like it on my face. And you just, you're driving down the road, and you'd be like, tick, tick, tick. And it's like, oh, now it's... Perfect, right? Oh, it's need defrost, tick, 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 and down like that. And so that's perfectly normal, right? That's how cars work. No big deal. We get used to it. Everything's fine. My roommate in college uh, didn't have a car and he was going on a date. He wanted to impress this girl. and He's like, hey, can I borrow your car? And I was like, sure. It's a great car. Enjoy it. Uh, and so he he gets back from the date and I was like, how'd it go, man? And he's like, well, there were some complications. And I was like, what's wrong? He's like, the car. And I'm like, hey, back off. There's a great car. What's wrong with the car? And he's like, well, here's basically what happened. So um, your air doesn't work. And I was like, my air works fine. You just have to go. Oh, I didn't tell him about the thing. I forgot to tell him about the thing. And it was a rainy night. And so I was like, well, what happened? He's like, well, the car started to fog up. And I was like, I don't think has barometric pressure. I know what happens on dates. I didn't really ask him. Um, and uh, so he, he said, yeah, it started to fog up. And so I, I, was, I put it on defrost, but it just wasn't defrosting anything. I was like, well, what'd you do? And he's like, well, there was like a dirty sock in the back. And I was like, yeah, sorry about that. He's like, no, it was great, because then I could just drive and wipe it at the same time. And I was like, did it work out okay? He's like, well, it was kind of stinky. And I was like, well, this is how things work out, right? So um, he, he was like, here's the bummer, no second date. And I was like, shocking. Um, so anyway, but it wasn't until he had experienced the air conditioner thing, the knob thing, that I was like, huh. I guess that is kind of weird. Like, I guess that's not how cars are supposed to work. I just lived with it. You just get used to these type of things. Uh, Abby and I do this all the time. We're like settlers with vehicles, right? Like, I took my car to the shop the other day, and the the key, the little key thing that unlocks the doors, hasn't worked in six years. Six years, I've just been like, well, I'll just unlock it. It's got a key, right? And the mechanic was like, I can put a battery in there for like $2. He's like, just bring it back. And I was like... Huh, you can fix that? I'll be darned, right? So you just get used to these types of things and how they work. What Jesus is doing with this prayer is he's saying, hey, I know there's a way that the world works. I get it, but it's not the best way. It's not the right way. What he's doing is he's shining light on the way the world operates. And he's he's saying, let's do it a different way. There is a more excellent way. It's worth noting that in Jesus' day, uh, this prayer was absolutely radical. The idea that, that people of different colors and backgrounds and socioeconomic groups uh, could come together it was, it was, was unheard of. And, in Jesus' day, the mindset was, uh, it wasn't God's love, it was actually God's wrath that was uh, prepared for those that were outside of God's chosen people. Division was standard operating procedure. And Jesus says here, you know what? The world will know that God sent Him, not to condemn it, but to save the world if you're unified because it's a completely different way of being. It's so much better, but it's so different, and the world will notice it. Because unity is actually a pretty unexpected thing. And the 11 guys that that were with Jesus who who heard him pray these words. They were people they didn't fully understand Jesus. they questioned Him. Uh, they knew in just a, a few hours, uh, things were going to get real heavy, and eventually they abandoned him altogether. Yet Jesus had confidence in them the whole way. Jesus never lost faith in God, and he never lost confidence in people to live this prayer out. And you know what's shocking? It actually happened pretty quickly. It seemed he had good reason to have confidence. The book of Acts is what follows the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John tell the story of Jesus. Acts tells the story of the church that develops after Jesus' resurrection. And in chapter 11, it talks about a church that was developing in the city called Antioch. It was after persecution. People were scattered, and they end up in Antioch. And this is just maybe eight years after Jesus' resurrection, so things are moving fast. And so Luke, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, but also Acts, records what happens at, that ch- at the church this way. Let me read it for you. There were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, this is really, really subtle, but it's actually really important. Luke mentions not only the names of the leadership there, but also their ethnicity. He says, in the, in the leadership at Antioch, there was a person who was from sub-Saharan West Africa. In the leadership of the church of Antioch, there was a person from the north coast of Africa, what is today uh, Libya. In the leadership there, there was a Jewish man of privileged upbringing. In the leadership there, there was a Roman citizen. Different backgrounds, socioeconomics, races, colors, united. And the world took notice. You know what Luke says right after he lists the names of the leaders? And they were first called Christians at Antioch. The world took notice, and I suspect the world would take notice today as well. If we pursued what you might call inconvenient unity as a way of displaying that people can actually unite, different types of people can actually unite around a thing that holds us tighter than anything that will try to pull us apart. That's Jesus and his love and this story of love that God's been writing. Around here, you'll hear us say from time to time uh, that we value making the most of our place in history. Here's what that means. What that means is uh, we believe God could have put us anywhere at any time to follow him, but he put us right here right now to follow him. And we wanna make the most of our place in history for the sake of the gospel. Do you think a conversation about unity might be interesting to the world right now when 77% of us say we're divided, that's what we experience? It seems that Jesus knew the answer was yes and he prayed for us all the way up to today. Jesus knew our inconvenient unity, if we actually pursued it, it would be a shining light in a foggy world to point people home to the gospel. But here's the question. What role are we playing in that 77%? The 77% of us that feel disunity, what role are we playing? What are we listening to or what are we saying that plays a role in division? What do we believe about ourselves? that plays a role in division? What do we believe about others that plays a role in division? Do we believe too highly of ourselves? Do we believe too little about others? Is that leading to division? Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself. God is no respecter of man. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. So what role are we playing? Let me ask you another question. What if the role we're playing in division is actually killing us? Juliana Holt Lundstedt is a researcher at, at BYU. She just undertook this pretty ambitious study, and the study was uh, to answer a question: How do you live to be 100 years old? The answer is probably pretty surprising, but here's how she went about uh, the study. She she studied tens and tens of thousands of middle-aged adults, which is a huge study. It's a, it's a big, sweeping study. And then looked at their diet and exercise and marital status and how often they went to the doctor. Do they drink? Do they smoke? These types of things. And then they sat around for seven years doing science stuff. Uh, and then they came back, right? Um, this is how science works. They ask a question and sit and watch. Um, and so, uh, so, so there's a scientist out there going like, hey, that's not what we do. Um, uh, so they sat around for seven years and then they came back and they were like, okay, who's still alive? Which is a pretty morbid study, but that's what they did. And here's, here's what they found. Um, whether you're overweight or not was the eighth leading indicator of uh, longevity of life. Exercise was only the seventh best indicator of longevity of life. So here's the good news about that uh, New Year's resolution that, that you put together and you've already long gone, haven't, haven't gone to the gym, haven't, haven't stepped in a gym. It's okay. Uh, you've still got a good chance of living a long life. Um, so there's that. And then, uh, so what, uh, moving up, getting a flu vaccine, that's a, that's a pretty strong indicator. Um, climbing up to third and fourth best indicators, quitting smoking, quitting drinking. Interesting. The top two, though, top two best predictors of long life are, are features of what you might call social life. Close social relationships. This is number two on the list, best predictor of long life. These, these are the types of relationships, like you could call someone if you needed a loan. You could call them if you needed a ride to the doctor. You could call them if you were having a crisis of, of, of thought, if you, were, if you were depressed. You could call on these people. That level of relationship, that was the number two. But most surprising, at the top, the best predictor of long life was something called social integration. How many people do you interact with on any given day? Not just your close relationships. Those are very, very important. But how intertwined into community are you? Do you talk to the guy that makes your coffee? Do you know the name of the person who handed you your bulletin? Do you talk to the mailman? Do you talk to the guy who bags your groceries? Do you know your neighbor? That integration into community along with a few other deep relationships, that's the strongest predictor of long life. So this study is showing us that relationships bring life. And Jesus said if you pursue relational unity, it brings others to life because they find him. Did you get that? The thing that brings us life helps others come to life. Because being known and loved and cheered on is good. And going it alone is bad. It isn't good for us, and it isn't good for the people that God has given us to love. And Jesus knew it, and he was willing to die for that truth. He descended the heights of heaven. He sweat, and he worked as a carpenter. And then he began a ministry where he healed, and he stopped for people no one else would. He he stopped for the blind beggar and the ostracized tax collector and the marginalized leper. He stopped for these people and he took them in and then he decided to take on an establishment that says, you know what, we like it with a few of us in and everybody else out and Jesus said, no, I want to take on that establishment I want to turn it upside down and I want to say all who will may come for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his life for that. If we don't experience unity in the church, it's not God's fault. It's ours. Jesus died for it. Let me just say this, because this is important. By virtue of being a believer, we're already unified. Ephesians 2, Paul says, Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far and those who were near, that through him, we no longer have to be strangers or aliens or foreigners, but we are fellow members of God's household. God's spirit in me is the same one that's in you and the same one that's in every believer. We are unified. We're made one by the same spirit, So the unity that Jesus prayed for, it's already who we are. The whole Christian life is about us living into being the people that we already are, living into the power and the forgiveness of who we already are. I mention this because it's important that we recognize that what Jesus is praying for us isn't beyond our ability. We are capable of this as humans and as believers. But sometimes we settle for a false solution to that problem of 77% of us feeling divided. You know what the false solution is? We live in this paradigm of, well, I'll just put up with people. Well, I'll just be quiet about it. Well, I'll just let them do their thing and I'll do mine thing. You know what? That's just hiding from each other. Because the opposite of disunity isn't ambivalence. It's community in light of eternity. I recently had an opportunity to hear uh, a little bit more about the refugee crisis in our world, for frame of reference. Uh, Seventy, uh, sorry, 65 million people in our, in our world are displaced. Displaced people means they've had to leave their home, uh, usually due to conflict, and they don't have the ability to return to their home. 65 million in our world. In our local community here in Orlando in the last five years, 1,200 of those 65 million are here in our community. They're living as displaced people, as part of our community. So 1,500, 1,200 here in in Orlando. A majority of those people come from the Democratic Republic of Congo. That is uh, a nation where 98% of people are Christian. And so a majority of the displaced people that are here in our community are family. And I had this conversation with a guy named Pastor Gabriel. He runs an organization called African Family and Community Outreach. And they work with these displaced people in our local community here in Orlando to give them a sense of belonging and and support and care because it's hard to make that transition and the U.S. government only helps people for like 30 days and so uh, they they help fill in the gap uh, along the way. And so I was talking with him and he said he recounted a conversation they recently had with one of these families that's been here seven years, been in, in Orlando for seven years, and and he talked about the struggles they were having and it was it was rough to hear. But there was one particular statement that. Man, it just broke my heart, I'm gonna be honest. And the quote is this, I've been in Orlando seven years, this family from, from the Democratic Republic of Congo said, we've been in Orlando for seven years and I've never been invited into an American home for a meal. I mean, that was heartbreaking. Imagine coming from a culture where everything is about family, everything's about table, everything's about community. You would have to do something terrible to not be invited in. And you come to a place and you've lived here for seven years in a, in a foreign land and no one's ever invited you in. Imagine what that would communicate about your value, about your worth. That is heartbreaking. And I think we have to do a lot better than that. We have to see people. We have to know people. This is our family. These are our brothers and our sisters. And if we don't see people, like unity doesn't even have a chance. This thing that Jesus said, this will point people to me. You want people to know me? Be unified. And he died for it. And if we're not willing to see people, I don't think that unity even has a chance. When Jesus prayed, I have given them the glory you gave me, Father, that they may be one as we are one. He's talking about a certain kind of unity, not organizational unity, more than that, more than unity of ritual, more than unity of even doctrine. He's talking about relational unity, which I think is actually the most inconvenient type because it costs something. It costs everybody involved something. It costs time. It costs attention that I could give to me. It costs comfort because, because I have to I have to hear and I have to seek to try to understand people, where they're coming from. It takes slowing down and remembering that Jesus' love extends to all kinds of people, even people that are wrong. Unity costs something. But if the people we love who are near to us but far from God, if they see this type of unity in us and Jesus says it will point them to him and if they don't see that type of unity in us we miss out and so do they so the question is how do we get there how do we get to this type of unity because Jesus gave his life for this prayer for us to be unified because it will point people to him how do we get there in a world in a country that's 77% divided I think we should watch kids I think kids have the answer, and this isn't like a, a "give kids the world" thing. Uh, I think they actually have the answer. If you ever put um, three or four uh, kids, maybe maybe a couple years, somewhere between two and five years old, in a room together, and just said "go." No, you would never do that because it's a terrible idea because they'll tear everything up and it'll be a big mess. But if you did a controlled study with padded walls and all that and just put them in a the room and said, go, here's what you would find. You would find that they create games, but, but a certain kind of game. They, they create stories and roles for everybody and they include everybody in and they play games that have no beginning, no middle, no end. They just keep going and keep going and keep going. Why? Because why would you want to create a game that ends? Because then the fun has to stop. You take that and you contrast it with adults. You put uh, three or four adults in a room and say, create a game. You know what would happen? You would figure out a game where you have teams and you have a winner and a loser. Because that's how things work. Millions of of rabid sports fans can't be wrong, right? There has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. But not with kids. With kids say. Let's keep it going. Let's keep inviting more people in. And if another kid shows up, they'll just make another role. They'll be like, you are a purple unicorn. And it's like, yes, and then they go, and then they're off, right? That's how kids operate. I think we can learn a lot from them. Nelson Mandela once said, no one was born hating another person because of the color of their skin, their background, or even their religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, then they can be taught love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than the opposite. I believe it when I look at little kids. We're born with this capacity to include others, to invite others in, to allow them to be a part. We learn division, we learn separation, we learn exclusion, but Jesus came to reteach us how to love. And I'm convinced that the type of conspicuous unity that Jesus is talking about here, the one where where the world starts to see us as unified and says there's something different over there. I'm convinced that it comes from making a thousand decisions that no one notices until it adds up to unity. Let me give you an example. I have a friend. I've known him for about a dozen years. And people say a lot of things about him. He's a really, really cool guy. But one of the things that is consistent that pretty much everybody says in one way or another is, you know, that guy, I've never heard him say a negative word about anybody man, I wish people said that about me. I've never heard him say a negative word. He's had opportunities to gossip. I've been in situations where he's been, had opportunities to gossip and, and to slander and those types of things, but he doesn't. He chooses not to. And look, I don't know if he has that verse on his mirror that says, speak only words that build up, but I know it's tattooed on his heart and it's noticeable. A thousand decisions that no one notices until it adds up to something called unity. Unity isn't built overnight, it's built over time. So it takes us giving an act of love, an act of kindness, a moment where we're willing to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, as James says. A moment of seeing people. A moment of being honest and and coming out of hiding and letting people in. A moment of saying, even though you're not perfect, I'm not going anywhere. A moment of opening a door for someone so that they know they're welcome to hear the gospel. A thousand things that cost a little bit Added up and joined together to amount to unity that gets noticed. That's what I'm here for. That's what I want us to be about. That's where I want us to go together. I want to see Jesus' prayer come to life here. So, as Jesus was walking to the garden, he was looking death and he was looking our sin right in the eye. He prayed. And as he walked and got closer, he didn't waver. His faith in the Father and his commitment to us didn't go anywhere. And even as he took on the eventuality of his death, his faith in the Father and his commitment to us didn't waver. I need you to hear this. If anyone or anything tells you you don't matter, they are completely wrong. Jesus going to the cross proves it. And if anyone or anything tells you that God isn't committed to you, that he doesn't believe in you, that he doesn't care for you, that he doesn't have great things for you, they are completely wrong because his prayer proves it. In his final moments, Jesus, with great faith in the Father, was thinking about you. And he prayed that you would seek unity that would be so different and so good that the world couldn't help but notice. So my hope is that we will be people that trust him enough because of what he's done for us, that we pursue what he prayed for. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for uh, the truth of who you are. Thank you that this all begins with a story of your love lived out in your son being willing to sacrifice for our sake so that we could have a way home. Thank you that that is the center of this story. And thank you for the invitation to be a part of the echo of that story being unity, being us seeking the type of inconvenient relational unity that gets noticed in this world that seems so divided far too often. I pray that we would see people as loved by you, as valuable to you, and that we would unite together as followers of you to encourage and equip and care for each other in a way that people can't help but wanna be a part of. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.